Hello and welcome to I Really Wish You Hadn't. This is a podcast about people and businesses that have made horrible mistakes, have fallen apart at the seams, or have just been generally awful since their inception. They're the kind of people and businesses that make you think, man, I really wish you hadn't. To season two of I Really Wish You Hadn't. Woo-hoo. You may notice some changes around here. Uh, for instance, when you clicked on this episode, you may see uh, a new a new logo that we're oh, really yeah. excited to show. We mentioned Nixon a lot, so it seemed appropriate. It did. It, it seemed appropriate, yeah. and this entire podcast is a dumpster fire. So, Also, uh, yeah. this season, we're, get, we're finally going to do it. Our improvisation skills are going to get better. We're going to start doing cold openings. And I got the perfect first cold opening. You ready? You ready? Well, that was supposed to have already well, happened by it now. It would have happened before the intro. Right, okay, well, you're, then forget you're, we did the intro. You're already failing at this. Forget we did. Okay, we're going to do a lukewarm opening. Okay. A lukewarm opening. Okay. You know fish can get sunburns? Really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Neat. Although, man, that was uh, we are starting <laughs> season two off great. <laughs> you you really hyped that one up, Kevin. Fish can get sunburns. Nito, uh, and and speaking of uh, calling each other by name, uh, I'm Michael Bentley, and I'm here with Cayman McMahon. Hey, hey. And as always, our producer Colin Moore. Hey, what's up? Um. So yeah. So starting, you know, with 2021, we're gonna try uh, kind of a new format out. Instead of me and Cayman splitting up a topic, um, we're each going to just kind of do our own topics and see how that goes. Starting with this episode, Cayman has taken this one all to himself. I know very little about this topic. Um, the, the war, war on, drugs. on drugs. Yeah, I actually I thought that I knew more. And in researching it, one, it's incredibly depressing Two. It, it's not it's not as clear cut as I thought it was. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions I think about the war on drugs, but I mean I, I say we just hop straight into it. You ready? I'm I'm I'm, I'm here for it. Let's do it. All right. I'm just happy that uh, you know someone else is in my boat now, going into a yeah. topic not knowing anything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm here. Now I'm the only one who knows anything. Um, How does it feel to be the first time that you've ever been knowledgeable? More... <laughs> Skip. Mm. We're done. Skip. Skip. Words are hard. Hurt my Eject feelings. button. <laughs> <laughs> so this story starts as many great stories do with bees. Bees? All right. Bees. Yeah. Okay. So according to the Oxford Dictionary, drugs are, quote, a medicine or other substance which has a physiological effect when ingested or otherwise introduced into the body. Now, Chinese pottery vessels dating back from 7,000 BCE, so over 9,000 years ago, suggest purposeful evidence of mead fermentation, alcohol made from honey, that predates both wine and beer. Now, some of you may be thinking, oh, but booze isn't really a drug. And if you do think that, I can just say that alcohol is, one, mind-altering, two, addicting, and three, definitely a chemical substance. I'm chalking it down as a drug. And I'm, of course I'm it's a drug. Get, I mean, yeah, it's, it's I don't even think that's a debate. Right. And I think there's, there's, some people will say, oh, yeah, it's a drug, but it's socially acceptable. Who gives a shit? Uh, I'm yeah. going to get more into that later. But yeah, so it is a socially acceptable drug. 
And now the first batch of mead, I will say, so the first, like, alcoholic drink was probably a chance discovery. A lot of, like, anthropologists think that early foragers likely drank the contents of what would be, like, rainwater-flooded beehives that had fermented naturally with the help of airborne yeast. But uh, once knowledge of mead production was in place, it spread globally and was popular with a lot of early civilizations like the Vikings, the Mayans, Egyptians, Greeks, Romans. So, you know, all the heavy hitters. Didn't you make mead one time? Oh, yeah, I've made mead. It's actually really easy and pretty fun and Mm. it gets you drunk. So, you know, this is the first like mass produced alcoholic drink. And in my opinion, probably the first drug. Uh, now, there is evidence of mushroom use close to 7,000 BCE, so some people say that that was the first drug use. But I like to think, since it's the first purposeful made example of mead in 7,000 BCE, that it, there had probably been plenty of accidents before. Regardless, it also sounded cooler to start the podcast with bees, so I went with that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, all this to say... <laughs> Uh, drugs have not only been a part of human history, but have played a major role in human history since our very beginning. Every culture has some, you know, quote, drug of choice and some sort of history with regulation. But for this episode, we're going to focus specifically on the U.S. and we're going to kick it into more modern history. So I'm going to start in the 20th century. So wait, what is America's drug of choice? Um, all of them. Okay. <laughs> we, we, we love drugs. Uh, so, I mean, you gotta think the early history, I I wasn't even going to get into this because I said I was going to keep it in the 20th century, but you gotta think a lot of the reason that the colonies were founded and were so profitable was because of tobacco. Of course, nicotine, mm-hmm. drug. Um, right. so like we literally started with drugs. That's why we're here. So bring it to the 20th century. We're starting at the 20th century. Early drug regulation. So modern drug regulation began in the U.S. with the Smoking Opium Exclusion Act in 1909. This law banned the importation, possession, and use of, quote, smoking opium. While other districts and states had made laws in the U.S. regulating drugs, this was the first federal law in the U.S. to ban the use of non-medical substances. Significantly, this law would not ban opium for medicinal reasons, obviously, you know, considering the drug epidemic of opioid use today. Uh, But it is still significant because it was the first federal law addressing these drugs. So, 1912, the International Opium Convention. Now, this was held in Shanghai, and the convention was an agreement signed by representatives from international powers really all over the world, and more people got on later. Uh, Of the original signatories, you had China, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Netherlands, Persia, which of course is now Iran, Portugal, Russia, Siam, which is now Thailand, uh, the UK, and British Overseas Territories, which includes British India. Uh, so this was a huge agreement back in 1912 where they were like, essentially the entire world was saying we have to get this under control. In this agreement, they agreed to work to limit opium smoking, limit its use for medical purposes, control its exports, and to control its harmful derivatives, i.e. morphine, heroin. So it's uh, safe to say that they failed in this attempt. Oh, yeah. No, drug regulation always fails, and we're going to get into that. Uh This agreement also applied to two relatively new drugs that were gaining popularity, like I said, one being heroin and two, cocaine. So, back to the U.S. We did end up joining the 1912 International Opium Convention Agreement in 1915, uh, but we also 
tried to be a little progressive on the issue. So in 1914, we had the Harrison Narcotics Act, which was introduced into legislation by Francis Burton Harrison. This act made the first United States federal law that regulated and taxed the production, importation, and distribution of drugs, being opiates and coca products. Uh, you could still be prescribed a drug, but it couldn't be sold for recreational use or to treat addiction. So this is the first thing that actually like is making drugs illegal in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to get to what I like to call, and after researching this, uh, the first war on drugs. Can you guess what I mean by the first war on drugs? Uh, that it's the only one and it succeeded perfectly. Nope. I'm talking about prohibition. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. right. Ah, so, yeah. now, if you are an American listening to the podcast, surely you remember, like, learning extensively about prohibition in history class. But I'm going to go ahead and cover a few key points for our foreign listeners or for anyone who has had one too many drinks since high school to remember. <laughs> hey! <laughs> Yeah, so you can probably already tell Prohibition did not work. Uh, So, Prohibition in the U.S. was a period between 1920 and 1933 in which the production, distribution, and the sale of alcoholic beverages was made federally and constitutionally illegal. So, this was a constitutional amendment. This was just as important as freedom of speech. It was the 18th Amendment. No booze. Yes, 18th Amendment. I know that because the, the, the first one was the 18th Amendment. The second one was the 21st Amendment because mm-hmm. 18 was the drinking age and then it became 21. That's how you remember ah. the amendments. That is actually a, that's a clever that's joke. And of course, yeah. 21st Amendment, uh, Michael is referring to the amendment that we had to put in the Constitution to repeal the 18th Amendment, which was stupid. I still remember that from history class. Well, in reality, many states before Prohibition had similar regulation on alcohol, you know, well before National Prohibition. This wasn't like a new idea. Uh, For example, in our home state of Tennessee, or at least my home state of Tennessee, uh, laws against manufacture and sale of alcoholic beverages actually began in 1909, uh, although it was very loosely enforced. Like Nashville and Memphis still just had open bars on the street, and they were pretty much like, yeah, there's nothing you can do about it. Prohibition was a little bit more strict. When you had the federal government behind you, things uh, rules are followed a little bit better, or at least more deceptively. So the first state to actually introduce prohibition was Maine all the way back in 1851, where the movement was met with such animosity that the attempted implementation had caused a full-on riot, where a full seventh of the town's population began rioting in the street and was only quelled by the arrival of militia who fired into the crowd, killing one and injuring seven others. So, Jesus. Prohibition, off to a bad start all the way back in the 1850s. Yeah. Wonder how it's going to go federally. Uh, needless to say, Prohibition, not popular. Regardless, the Volstead Act was constructed to handle the implementation of the new amendment. Now, before I get any further, I do want to toss out President Woodrow Wilson did attempt to veto... Uh, the Volstead Act, um, but he was overridden by supermajority, so thanks for something, you racist bastard. Under the Volstead Act, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, known today as the ATF... Did we uh, just was... take the explosives part off, or is that still a thing? I don't know if that's still it's a It's still a part of the official yeah. title. Oh, okay. They just don't we have just it call in them the ATF. ATF alcohol, huh. Tobacco, and Firearms, it sounds like a really cool time, but it's kind of a bummer of an agency. So, Well, my thing is, add explosions in there. I mean, if you're going to go... I feel like <laughs> ATFE. 
It doesn't really. They'd have to get like new vests that say ATFE. It's very expensive to add to. Also, ATFE does not roll off the tongue as well. It's not as good as ATF. No, yeah. it's yeah. not. So it, the ATF was moved from the Department of the Treasury, which at the time, you know, it was mostly like about taxation, uh, to a new department called the Department of Prohibition. So this, uh, the Bureau of, there was a whole Department you know, of Prohibition. Yes. Did so they the have ATF, a secretary? Uh, I would imagine so. Although oh I did not God. look into it, if I'm being honest, there well, was they could have just been under some other maybe department. Yeah, like, it could have been under the True, Department yeah, of yeah, yeah. the Interior or something. Yeah. I don't know. So regardless, the um, most boring secretary of all time. <laughs> I'm the secretary of don't drink. I mean, we're gonna have plenty of secretaries of don't do drugs. Okay. So <laughs> we still have bummer secretaries. Uh, so it was the job of the ATF at this time to implement, along with other policing agencies, uh, violations of prohibition, and uh, boy, did they have their hands full. To give you an idea of what I mean, prohibition came into effect at 12 a.m. on January 17, 1920. The first violation was reported in Chicago at 12.59 the same day. So... We made it 59 minutes, almost an hour, boys. Uh, This violation was a reported infraction when six armed men committed a train robbery, resulting in $100,000 of stolen medicinal whiskey. And I bring this up because this is going to be the new trend. It's going to get violent. People are going to be breaking the law. And they do, like, immediately. So, whiskey was, like, prescribed? Yeah, you would still have prescribed whiskey. For what? Um, they would do it heartbreak? for, like, surgery. I don't know, probably heartbreak. All sorts of stuff, man. You get prescribed whiskey. I mean, you gotta think. It, it, we were still using whiskey Well, that's the thing. I've never had a doctor tell me, like, oh, by the way, hit the liquor store on the way home, pick yourself up some whiskey, you're gonna need it. Sounds like your doctor's not very cool. I guess not. Well, now we have the pharmaceutical industry, and they don't want to lose money to the alcohol industry. True. So, Yeah. Big Pharma. <laughs> Hashtag legalize it. Legalize it. Legali- legalize it. Legalize whiskey. Yeah. Uh, prohibition had opened up a whole new business venture for those who were willing to operate outside of the law, uh, sparking an immediate golden age of violence for gangs across the country. And I'm sure that we've all seen some gang movie at some point. Uh, gangs got huge. Like, organized crime was because of Prohibition. It was insane. So, for the first year of Prohibition, overall crime in the U.S. increased by 24%, and the police had no way to stop it. That is, even if they wanted to. See, as years went on under Prohibition, public perception turned against the Volstead Act, and drinking not only continued, but it became more dangerous and introduced corruptions on all level of government. Bootlegging and moonshine production, uh, unregulated might I add, uh, had to up the ante to make the risk worth the reward, and therefore drinks became stronger and competition became more violent. Think about getting shot for your beer today. It would never happen. I'd take like, a bullet no one's... for it. <laughs> I mean, I would take a bullet for it. But, like, people were getting killed for booze. For just, like, simple booze. And it's crazy. But that's what Prohibition does. And that's what it's still doing. So, as much as I want to keep talking about Prohibition in the U.S., and we will definitely cover some gangsters in the future at some point. There's a lot of cool gangs out there. I've actually had those topics on my radar for a while. 
Uh, I think the point here is obvious. Prohibition. I want a shirt that just says "Gangs are cool." Came in Magnahan. <laughs> well, I mean, like original gangsters are cool. Like they suck. They're they suck, but they're an interesting topic. Is what I mean there it by is. cool. There, I'm covering. Original my gangsters are cool. He said it. <laughs> God, make the coffee mugs. Oh, you all are going to be shocked when you find out uh, what Samuel Adams did before he founded this country. Um, he made winter lager, right? <laughs> no, he was a gangster. So, Prohibition, or as I like to call it, the War on Drugs 1, was a massive failure. And that's where I'm getting with this. <laughs> well, it's uh, just practice. Practice for the next one. The next one will be better. Right. The next one will be better. So, by 1933, the country abandoned Prohibition, repealing the amendment, which had only been created 13 years earlier. Uh, so, drinking returned and surpassed the levels of drinking pre-Prohibition. So, like, people had picked up the habit during Prohibition. Uh, but it was done much more safely in non-criminal environments with regulated drinks and more often than not were much less alcoholic. Because, you know, you couldn't get, like, beer and wine anymore. You could only get, like, moonshine and mix it with other stuff. So now people were, like, drinking beer again. And, like, you're not going to die drinking beer. You might die drinking bathtub moonshine. So the return of drinking also hurt the income of gangs in the U.S. Uh, who had to turn to other revenue sources to stay relevant, i.e. drugs. So the U.S. had cracked down on other substances, mainly opiates, with the Narcotic Drug Import and Export Act. This act established the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in 1930. Uh, on one hand, it was the job of this bureau to help with prohibition efforts, uh, because this is, you know, three years technically before the end of prohibition. Uh, but more importantly, their major duty was to tackle the drug epidemic that was growing in the U.S., or what drugs were in the U.S. Appointed as the head of the FBN was a man named, oh, FBN, Federal Bureau of Narcotics, kind of like FBI, but, you know, slightly different. Appointed as head was a man named Harry Anslinger. And this guy is way more relevant in the entire, like, drug crusade than I realized. So, Harry Anslinger was a big old stick in the mud. And by stick in the mud, I mean big old asshole. Pre-Anslinger, drug regulation in the U.S. was mostly confined to cocaine and opium slash its derivatives. Like we said, heroin, morphine. Uh, but a new drug had started taking the U.S. by storm, a drug known as Indian hemp, which would go by a few other names. Michael, do you know any other names for Indian hemp? Uh, Indian hemp? You mean like you mean like moongrass? Yeah. Like funky fern? Yeah. You talk about some giggled nug? Yeah. Some of that icky sticky? Yeah. A little bit of devil's lettuce? Yeah. Some wacky tobacco. <laughs> You yeah. try to talk to me about hippie spinach, <laughs> some Mary Jane, <laughs> some space cabbage, reefer. We're talking about reefer, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're talking about reefer. Uh, reefer. <laughs> well, like many teenagers discovering Tame Impala in Seth Rogen movies, weed was exactly what Harry Anslinger needed. See, what's what everyone of... needs. <laughs> it's what everyone needs. We didn't say weed. We didn't say weed or marijuana the whole time. Oh. Weed what are that? marijuana. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> For our older listeners out there, we're talking about marijuana. <laughs> talking I, feel like about reefer, I feel like reefer covers our older listeners. Reefer. Reefer? Reefer. Everyone yeah, should know it's that's, reefer. 
That's like an old name for... You think my grandma knows Reefer? Probably. For sure. It used to be called Reefer. Anyways. Anyway. Okay. Moving on. We all know that we're talking about that sticky icky. That OG Kush. <laughs> that diesel. Uh, see, with the end of Prohibition, Anslinger knew that in order to keep the FBN relevant, he had to expand its purpose past more than just opiates and cocaine. Because they simply were not that big of issue in the U.S. Like, they were a moderate issue, but just that. It was then that Aslinger heard about Victor Licata. Now, Victor Licata was a young man who hacked his family to death with an axe, supposedly after smoking a bit of reefer. Um, he got the and, reefer madness. Yeah, and this was according to some likely less than reputable newspapers. Uh, this was the golden age of yellow journalism, so just whatever they could write about. Um, in reality, Victor had severe mental issues. Uh, that they had tried to address before. Like most axe killers do. I'm going to go out there. You know, I'm going to be the first on record to say. If you axe murder your family. You might have a few mental issues that you should address. You're alienating our axe murderer <laughs> listener base. I'm telling them to go get help. Um, and to stop smoking weed. What are you, um, a narc? <laughs> no, realistically. There was no evidence whatsoever that Victor had ever smoked marijuana. So like, it's just like. Oh, he axe murdered his family. It was probably... Drugs. Weed. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how all of this started. So, this was Anslinger's ticket to saving the FBN. So, he wrote up proposals for strict regulation of the drug and started a national campaign of anti marijuana propaganda. He would say things like, It makes a murderer who kills for the love of killing out of the mildest mannered man. Uh, truth. Man speaks truth. <laughs> We would all be dead. Uh, with help from famed yellow journalism, you know, icon, William Randolph Hearst. Uh, and this is the guy who famously helped the U.S. get involved in the Spanish-American War, which, you know, go listen to our Cuba series. Anslinger began running his Gore Files collection of stories in newspapers about marijuana addicts and their violent acts. Later, all of these all of his examples of like violent marijuana use were pretty much all proven to be bullshit, except for two uh, that they couldn't prove had ever happened at all. But it doesn't matter because you can put it in the newspaper because William Randolph Hearst just, you know, would put anything in a newspaper if it'd make fake people buy news. it. Fake news. William Randolph Hearst was fake news. Wow. Um, that's not controversial. The man Brave. has a in this terrible legacy. Climate. The, he, he, He's ruined us. So, in fact, at this time, the American Medical Association published a finding in which 29 out of 30 pharmacists and drug industry representatives recommended Crest. <laughs> no, <laughs> well, probably that, too. But they objected to his proposals to ban marijuana, citing evidence that it had no negative effects and was very difficult to misuse. Now, this is the American Medical Association. This is like... Big. This is, you know, big. They're very, very credible. So apparently the one dissenting pharmacist was all the proof that Aslinger needed. Um, probably not their intention there. And in 1937, he succeeded in getting the Marijuana Tax Act passed, which classified marijuana as a drug and allowed regulation of its use. Now, there is a lot of belief that Aslinger's agenda in passing the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937 may not have been all too savory. There's a popular theory among the academic community that it was Aslinger's goal 
to prevent the growth of the hemp industry, uh, supported by businessmen like Andrew Mellon, newspaperist Randolph Hearst, who we just talked about. And the I've DuPont actually family. heard that, that this was yeah. all like a, a stab at hemp. Yeah. So, uh, and a lot of the supporting evidence for this case is that, you know, it was the big people pushing this. You had Aslinger, Andrew Mellon, uh, who I think was like secretary of the treasury at this time. And also the wealthiest man in the U S uh, Randolph Hearst and the DuPont family. So, uh, this cast of like fun time villainy that was pushing for marijuana to be illegal um, was about to lose a lot of money from the recent invention of something called the decoricator. Decor, decorticate, decorticator. Decorticator. See, they, they needed more money for marketing. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, it would have made hemp a very cheap substitute for the paper pulp that was used in the newspaper industry and therefore all of Hearst's investments in the timber industry. Uh, and then Mellon was heavily invested in the DuPont's family new synthetic fiber, nylon, uh, which was way more expensive to produce than hemp cloth now that the decorticator had come out. And I think this certainly explains like the support of Hearst, Mellon, and DuPont. But I don't think that that's why Aslinger went for weed. Uh, I think Aslinger was for harsher drug sentences and crackdowns on marijuana for a completely different reason. Because he was a narc. Uh, I know some people might say that this word gets tossed around too much. And it's real easy to talk shit about someone who's deceased. But in my research, I have become convinced that Aslinger was a pretty abhorrent racist and was also strangely anti-jazz. I know he was anti-jazz. I am fairly certain that he's an important racist. Are those two things related? Like, wh- which one yes, came they from are. the other? They, they was are. it that I he think... became racist because he hated jazz? Or did he hate jazz because he was racist? There's no telling. It's one so, or the other. So the man does not like B-movie. No, he doesn't like hates jazz. Hates B-movie. And hates hates, hates movie. The, new, the new hit Pixar movie, Soul. Also. You like jazz? Oh, yeah, it's very jazz. You like jazz? Uh, yeah, so to back up my allegations, I've brought some fun examples. Oh my god, it's come full circle. This thing started it's with all bees. It's bees. started with it's bees. <laughs> back to bees. Hey, this story starts as all great stories do, with bees. Bees. Uh, Bee movie. Great, so great story. I, so I brought some fun examples of how big a piece of shit he was and why I think he was a racist. Uh, he once stated, and I am gonna, I'm gonna read a few quotes here. Okay, be careful, They're Cayman. quotes. Hold They're on. quotes. I'm putting this in What's red in these tape quotes? All around. <laughs> all around red all right. tape. Big quotes. Quotes. He quotation once marks. stated. Harry Aslinger once stated. These the there words are, there Don't are read it in your voice. Use a different voice. <laughs> Any <laughs> voice will do. There are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the U.S. And most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz, and swing results from marijuana use. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, and others. In another ad, he said, Reefer makes darkies think they're as good as the white man. So, oh, as Jesus. you can see, he Came seems a, You're making him sound like a Muppet. I said any voice, I, <laughs> I made a mistake. I, I was just going to use just my a voice. racist Muppet. This is, this is Aslinger. Like I said, I'm pretty sure he's racist. That's that's the you two think so? quotes. Maybe. Well, oh, you I think got, he, might, he be. might be racist. I you think more. he could be. Possibly. I, I'm laying out my case. Okay. <laughs> I think you did it already. <laughs> so he was incredibly determined to go after musicians, describing jazz as quote 
musical anarchy and evidence of the recurrence of primitive impulses that lurk in black people awaiting to emerge. <laughs> That's my third example that he's racist. What the? Uh, this is the man who made our marijuana laws. This is the man who ran what was essentially the DEA for like 27 years. I have the exact number written down later. I'll bring it up. You know, it's, it's one of those things that like is not surprising at all. It's just how blatant it is. That blatant. Yes, yes. Yes. It's, it's like it's like you expect it. It's but you not on the nose. But you don't think that they just come out and say it, you know, <laughs> yeah, like they do. Uh, another one after failing to convict former heroin addict and you know, former heroin addict is a big deal. Overcoming heroin addiction is huge. So after failing to convict former heroin addict musician Billy Holiday by planting drugs on her through a proxy, he then decided to attack her on her deathbed, stating that he and his men found heroin pinned underneath her hospital bed. She's on her deathbed in liver failure. She cannot get under her hospital bed. Uh, mm-hmm. Regardless, they use this as an excuse to uh, hold her in custody by handcuffing her to the bed, posting armed guards at her room, and barring entry from visitors without written permit for the final five weeks of her life. It's how petty this dude was. Because he didn't like her jazz music. Well, and the Billie Holiday story is a lot. Like, we're probably going to need to cover more of Billie Holiday's life at oh, some point. Sure. Because it's, it's a doozy. The government did a number to her. Yeah, Aslinger had a special, like, contempt for Billie Holiday. Oh, my last one, uh, marijuana was actually a racism. Did you know that? The word marijuana. Really? Uh, So it was pushed by uh, Aslinger because previously the drug had been known as cannabis. Mm -hmm. But he wanted to associate cannabis with Mexicans, so he started calling it marijuana. What? Yeah, he didn't want people to think that it was like actually a drug. He thought that it, he he tried to push the concept that it was all coming from Mexico and that like all the like Mexicans and black people were like and Asians were like all in league with each other to like spread the Did he make around. up the word? Was it already no, it ex- a word? It existed before. He just popularized it. He okay. stopped calling it cannabis and he started calling it marijuana to make that did association. He, did he did he like put an emphasis it was like marijuana? Uh, actually, in the original like marijuana tax act, they spelled it with an H instead of a J. Marijuana. Which I think is yeah, so they did. They literally, they yeah. unironically did what I just joked about. Yes, yes. So you're you're correct. <laughs> oh that was a good God. guess there. <laughs> so uh, I'm gonna play devil's advocate for my own argument here. I think that I've laid out some pretty good proof that he was a little racist. Um, just but little, I will just, say just maybe a he, touch. Aslinger did hire 35 black agents and one Asian agent um, who is believed to be the first Chinese American hired by a law enforcement agency. Hold on. What you're saying is he hired black friends? He he hired black friends and one Asian To say, I'm not racist, I have black friends. Uh, No, he more of hired them to spy on other black people and Asians. Okay. Yeah. Uh, nice. so since they were mostly used to spy on their own race, I'm not sure that this was something that was done because he's anti-racist. Uh, I should also say that a black agent that worked for Aslinger also said that he was treated fairly and respectfully. But once again, with all my other evidence, I'm going to stick to my theory that he was probably pretty racist. Yeah. Yeah. Believe what you may. Um, I did play devil's advocate. So, you know, I, I came to the defense of the dead man. Now, aside from the marijuana act, 
Aslinger did expand the FBN in other ways, mainly that he was the first to expand the U.S.'s anti-drug efforts into other countries uh, that he believed were the source of drugs, such as France, Italy, Turkey, Beirut, Thailand. Hold um, on. What drugs were coming from France? Cigarettes? Probably. Who knows? Something nefarious, I guess. I would imagine at this point probably like opium, heroin. Hmm. I don't know. I don't want to malign the French people. I don't know what kind of drugs they're. They I'm were perfectly fine with here. maligning the French. Okay, well, take that. So yeah, essentially, what I'm saying, what's important about this part is this is the first time that like the FBN is now working with other countries to the extent that like we're operating in other countries to try and stop the drugs, which of course we're doing a whole lot of today. So Aslinger served as head of the department for 32 years. I think it said 27 earlier. 32 years uh, before going into semi-retirement in 1962, where he then served as advisor for narcotics to the UN, uh, spreading his bullshit far and wide. And then, you know, eventually he died. And I I don't think that we lost much for it. They found some heroin underneath his hospital bed. (laughs) Handcuffed him to his bed for five weeks. Yeah, it's hard to have pity on someone like that, but he seemed like he had a pretty successful life, unfortunately. Uh, So now I'm going to get to the part that I like to call the war on drugs. Two. This is the one, of course, that we're still in. uh, But now it's time that we bring up one of our favorite topics slash people here on IRWYH. The man who all roads lead back to, Richard Nixon. Oh, boy. Nice. (laughs) So, um... During Nixon's tenure as president, there was a little war going on that you may have heard of called the Vietnam War. In 1971, the Department of Defense reported that 51% of soldiers had smoked marijuana, 28% had consumed heroin or cocaine, and 31% had used psychedelics such as LSD or mushrooms. And honestly, I can't blame them. Uh... I can blame the ones doing uh, hallucinogenics. I think the only thing worse than, like, my fear of, like, being in war is being on hallucinogenics in war. Well, strangely <laughs> enough, they can use hallucinogenics, or there's a lot of evidence now that hallucinogenics right. can be used to treat PTSD. So yeah, like, that's true. Maybe they were yeah. treating themselves, Michael. <laughs> I doubt it, because generally you need to do them in trace amounts. I doubt they were doing trace amounts of hallucinogenics. No, probably not. They were probably trying to cope with the hellscape that they'd been thrust into. And of course, a lot of them developed drug problems after the war, and our nation did not take care of Vietnam vets at all. Another topic. Another topic for another day. Heroes. Uh, So meanwhile, back in the homeland, drug use was exploding among the youth, and in many ways was fueling the counterculture that was concerning the older generations in the U.S. And saying concerning them was a bit of an understatement. Like, people thought that, like, the entire American way of life was crashing down because people used funky colors. But because of these reasons, in June of 1971, Richard Milhouse Nixon, that's right, I busted out the middle name, he announced that the drug abuse was to be public enemy number one and officially declared the war on drugs. Now, using the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act of 1970, wow, that's a mouthful, Uh, Congress had already laid the groundwork for stricter categorization and control of drugs. And in 1973, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, was created from the remnants of what was previously the FBN. Uh, So really, like, it just kind of got a name change. Uh, At the start, the DEA was given 
about 1,400 special agents and a budget of less than $75 million. Today, the agency has nearly 5,000 agents and a budget of well over $2 billion. Now, this all sounds pretty bad, like Nixon started the war on drugs, but I will say this. I want to point this one thing out. Nixon also started a federal drug rehabilitation program and repealed the two to ten year federal min and the two and repealed the two to ten year federal mandatory minimum sentence for marijuana offenses. So he got rid of that. He was like, that's ridiculous. We we're not gonna give mandatory sentences for marijuana. Well, there you go. Now, uh the mid seventies people started to kind of like chill on the drugs thing. Um, Vietnam was over, gas was too expensive to go anywhere, and the Star Wars movies were all on the horizon, so I guess people were just generally in a better right. mood. You don't need to, you don't need to hallucinate when you can just go to the theater and see the coolest things ever. Well, no, no, no. People didn't, like, chill on using drugs. People just oh. chilled on being upset about chilled drugs. On, yeah. yeah, yeah, they just chilled Oh, without on, like, drugs, we drugs. wouldn't even have Star Wars. You know how much That's cocaine a, that, there was and a blood lot of sweat and cocaine went into those movies? There was so much cocaine done that Princess Leia has a coke nail. In one yeah. of the movies. Yeah. Uh, so between 73 and 77, 11 states actually decriminalized marijuana possession. Uh, Wait, what? Yeah. Well, they decriminalized. Say that again. Hold on. It, it was still legal. Between 73 and 77, 11 states decriminalized marijuana possession. What? Did that so, go away? No, it was like, it was like, um, like you could still get like fined for it, but like, yeah, you basically like, like how it, it is now, like how yeah. states are decriminalizing it. Yeah. So that actually went away. That was a thing. There was, that uh, they states got had rid decriminalized. of, that's nuts. Yeah. Yep. Uh, peanut boy, Jimmy Carter became president in 77 and he was pretty chill. Uh, so among some of the chill things that he did, uh, Carter was determined to decriminalize marijuana nationally, and he actually ran on that platform. So mm. not only did we have 11 states decriminalize weed, uh, we had a president win that was like saying, hey, we should decriminalize weed. He wanted to convert that peanut farm. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, his whole argument was like, I didn't write down the quote here, but he said something about like the um, negative effect of getting in trouble for having the drug shouldn't be worse than the negative effect of doing the drug. Right. Um, so I, you know, pretty rational statement. Uh, but during his first year in office, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to decriminalize up to one ounce of marijuana. So that was a thing. And things were pretty good as far as like the war on drugs. Like we had kind of certain like loosening the grip and mm -hmm. it, it seemed like it was working out a little bit. Um, but now let's talk about the Reagan era. Is that, uh, I, I think this might be the first time we've brought up Reagan on this podcast. There is no way. I think is so. Is there really? Mm-hmm. Shit. Well. <clears throat> have first of many, probably. First of many. So before I make Reagan out to be the super villain that he certainly is, I think it's important to discuss what's happened during Reagan's administration with cocaine. Now, remember when I talked about booze during Prohibition and it became stronger to justify the risk of mm -hmm. running it? Well, the same thing happens to drugs. A uh, prime example, right here, right now, uh, during the Reagan administration, the invention and epidemic of crack cocaine. Now, crack Who cocaine, invented crack cocaine? That's a good question. I didn't want to get that deep into the conspiracy territory. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's conspiracy, but I, I don't know. I don't know for sure. So yeah. we'll, we'll move past it. So crack cocaine is essentially a more addictive crystalline version of cocaine that can be smoked to produce a very strong, although very brief high. Uh, to put it simply, about 
$40 a Coke, a dollar of baking soda, and a little bit of heat, and dealers could make up to $200 worth of crack. Uh, so, you know, smaller, which means easier to transport. You need less of it, so it goes a longer way. Uh, this is the same thing that happened with moonshine. It made more, way more sense to seal someone one jar of moonshine than, like, four cases of beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just making it all more compact and therefore more dangerous. It's like concentrated OJ. Yes. <laughs> you can make a lot of OJ out of OJ concentrate. Right. Uh, so in 1984, cocaine-related hospital emergencies numbered around 23,500. Um, with the introduction of the crack epidemic, by 1987, cocaine incidents had increased to 94,000 that year. Yikes. Now, Reagan, and I will say at this point, rightfully so, knew something had to be done, but he might have been a little severe with it. See, Reagan thought that Nixon's quote-unquote war on drugs thing was a good idea. Only problem is he thought that Nixon wasn't severe enough. So he thought not only should these policies be reintroduced, but expanded upon greatly. So with the sponsorship of everyone's favorite segregationist representative, Strom Thurmond, uh, the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984 was passed. Now this act standardized federal sentencing, including minimum mandatory sentences, eliminated the possibility of parole for federal crimes, increased marijuana conviction penalties on all levels, so for dealers, consumers, producers, whatever, and established civil forfeitures and equitable sharing. Uh, If you don't know what those are, essentially they mean if you're suspected of a crime, the police can take your shit and then sell it and keep the profits. It's very abused today. If the issue was crack cocaine, why were they coming down so hard on marijuana again? Um, this is around the time where they started calling it a gateway drug. Okay. And their thought was that they could just if come you, down it, hard d- on it. K- kill it at the source, that way it could never turn into a crack cocaine addiction. But if we're being realistic, the kind of people that were not supporters of Reagan at this time were typically black people and were typically uh, liberal people. Uh, those were the two groups that used marijuana the most. Yeah. And if we're being realistic, that's a lot of the reason that marijuana has been cracked down so hard on for so long. And that's 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 conspiracy theory. I cannot say that definitely. I didn't want to get too into it. I'll bring it up in the after notes. So by 1986, media coverage of the crack epidemic had brought the country to a fever pitch uh, to do something anything to save the country because if you'd watched the news you would have thought that the world was crumbling in because everyone was getting addicted to drugs and it was going to happen to your kids and they were going to smoke reefer and they were going to murder you with an axe you know that story's still floating around so for example of what the media was doing in 1985 the proportion of americans polled who saw drug abuse as the nation's quote-unquote number one problem was around two to six percent By September 1989, it reached a remarkable 64%, one of the most intense fixations by the American public on any issue in polling history. Like, it blasted off immediately, and everyone was like, this is the number one problem. Faster than, like, you know, wars and all that. Faster than terrorism after 9-11? I'm... I'm not sure about that, but it. Come on, it's it got it's t- terrorism after 9/11 had to have hit higher, but I'm gonna be it, honest, is, it is a high number. I took that quote from CBS, so 
I'm fairly certain it's accurate, but Fake this is one of the most intense fixations. One of the most. Oh my god, he stole it. He stole it. Well, no one watches CBS for news. <laughs> so You know uh, what CBS stands for, Cayman? Concentrated uh, bullshit. Is that is that I true? I no, it's not. Oh, okay. It's <laughs> <laughs> not true. That's not what it stands for. I never would have guessed. So, therefore, in 1986, the Anti-Drug Abuse Act was signed into law. And this act greatly increased the minimal mandatory drug sentences, such as uh, you would go five years without parole for possession of just five grams of crack cocaine. Five grams of crack cocaine is not a lot. Like, that's, like, pretty much the minimum amount that someone would probably buy at a time. Hmm. Uh, That's, like, a use of crack cocaine. And it's important to note here that this mandated the same five-year sentence for possession of 500 grams of powder cocaine, which was more popular among white drug users in the U.S. And, like, 500 grams of powder cocaine, adversely, is a lot of cocaine. Uh, But you would still get the same sentence as just a tiny amount of five grams of crack cocaine. Mm -hmm. Uh, This 100 to 1 disparity, because that's what it is, 500 to 5 grams, meant that more often than not, the vast majority of nonviolent drug offenders who were going to prison were black. Also, I mean, 500 grams of powder cocaine was insanely more expensive than 5 grams of crack cocaine. Oh, yeah. So this is just targeting low income, like, the lowest lowest of the lowest class. And that's, it's just, a lot of the drug laws specifically target low income people. And minorities, like just period. No matter how you look at it, that is who they affect. Is there an ulterior motive there? You know, people have theories about that all day. I would think, yes, I don't want to come out with a definitive position right now, um, but we'll keep going with it. So by 1990, the amount of Americans who saw drugs as the U.S.'s number one problem had plummeted from over 64% the year prior, like we were talking about, to less than 10%. Now, is this because the policies that were enacted had ended the prevalence of the drug use in the country? Uh, No, not at all. Uh, Actually, it was just because the media was more kind of bored with the topic. Uh, There was less coverage for drug-related news and less demand for it. So they just kind of dropped it and then people stopped caring. That being said, the loss of public interest didn't mean that the policies enacted during the hysteria were going anywhere. They continued on to result in escalating levels of arrest and incarceration, mostly for low-income groups and minority groups. In fact, incarcerations for nonviolent drug offenses rose from 50,000 in 1980 to over 400,000 in 1997. Now, I considered at this point bringing up private prisons and their role in incarceration rates, um, but I think we're certainly going to get to cover that on their own episode at some point, so I'm just going to move on. Now, the war on drugs today. Uh, Are we winning? No, absolutely not. Are we even trying? Yes, desperately. Now, despite its $30 billion a year budget, $30 billion a year, the DEA is only effective in stopping roughly 1% of drug trafficking. The problem is, the U.S. can go after the supply all that it wants, and that's been our mantra since the beginning of the war on drugs, is keep going after the supply. But as long as there's demand, there will always be supply. And we learned that in Prohibition, and that's the reason we stopped. In fact, the war on drugs is actually making the problem worse. See, the gangs and the cartels of the world are the answer to the war on drugs. 
they would not exist without these kind of prohibition things. And they like their money off doing what is illegal. The only people that want drugs illegal as much as the government are the gangs and cartels because that is their income. And it's that simple. A lot of countries have realized this in their drug policies and have tried to step in to, you know, make things more legal. You know, it's better to have the regulation on these drugs than to have the cartels making them. Now, illegality also makes the drug trade more risky and therefore more dangerous. It is estimated today the war on drugs is responsible for somewhere between at a minimum 25% and all the way up to as much as 75% of the U.S.'s homicide rate. Hmm. The U.S.'s incarceration rates are also insane. See, despite only having 5% of the world's total population, we have 25% of the world's prison population. Mm-hmm. Nearly 50% of these prisoners are in prison for doing some sort of drug offense. Now, the fact that we're losing the war on drugs is really no secret. In fact, you've probably noticed the U.S. is starting to change its tactics a bit. Uh, for what is now seen as a less problematic drug, uh, weed is now legal in 15 states and decriminalized in 32. Unfortunately, not in ours, but, you know, it is what it is. So, uh, as of 2020, Oregon has become the first state in the union to completely decriminalize all drugs, not just marijuana, and instead rely on the taxes from the sale of marijuana and fines for drug possession to provide free rehabilitation services to those in the state that may want them. Um, Now, this is very new, so we haven't gotten to see it play out yet, but I am impressed with Oregon with taking this step. Is it going to work out for them? Only time will tell. I think all the citizens are going to be on PCP and picking up their cars. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, we'll see. And look, it'll be awesome. At the end of the day, you, the listener, are listening to an amateur, you know, podcast. You're not going to find the answer to the war on drugs here. But legalize here's, it. Here's my well, kind here's of point. Thing. Here's they want to keep Portland weird, and that's a great way to do <laughs> it. Now, now it is. Now it's now it always will be. My dad gave me some advice a long time ago that making a mistake doesn't make you dumb. But making the same mistake again and expecting a different result does. The U.S. keeps making the same mistake again. There's like, oh, yeah, we're just going to keep doing prohibition. Eventually, it's going to work out. No, it is but, time to I try mean, something you're, new. They're making the mistake if the goal is ending drug use. But, again, I don't want to get super into this, but if the goal is to keep people down, you know, like... That's true. They're succeeding. If the goal, if, if is, they're, if the goal is incarceration... If the goal it's is just a man keeping you down, just the, exactly, Colin, you're getting it. You're getting what I'm saying. But, you know, like, I mean, right. If, Which is a fantastic. They, they're smart. They, there's not s- stupid people making these rules. They know what they know. It's not going to work. Yeah. They know what works. That's that's more the, you know, conspiracy doesn't mean that it's not true, but that's more of the conspiracy side. And it's important to think, you know, if. All of us can sit here and realize that the war on drugs is not working and it's still going on. Then what's the actual reason that's still going on, which is the argument that a lot of people make. And it's it definitely does keep a certain portion of the population down. Those in poverty, those minorities. And, you know, at least Oregon's at least Oregon's doing something, man. <laughs> at least they're finally changing. They're, it up. They're doing something. And now we'll, look, see, e- we'll see how that works out for them. Even looking at um, even looking at, you know. Oregon didn't go into this completely blind with no data. Uh, Portugal decriminalized all drugs back in 2002. 
and their decriminalization of drugs led to lower HIV rates, less crime, um, less gang violence. Switzerland did the same thing a few years back and started opening up clinics, and then now they only have like 50% of the same like heroin overdose instances that they used to have. Uh, so Actually, there's definitely, I have there's a evidence. statistic right here. Yeah, what's your statistic? Um, in 2002, after they after Portugal decriminalized all drugs, they became 75% more groovy. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. That's, interesting. that's awesome. And that's science. I don't know how specifically. I guess you use the groovometer to yep. measure, like, yep. yeah, it's, uh Yep. Yeah. I, I'm seeing the needle. It's just spiking right I'm now. I'm pretty sure you just go around Portugal asking people if they like jazz. Yeah. And 75% more jazz, people jazz like is the number jazz. one genre in Portugal now. I still can't tell if Harry Aslinger hated black people because he hated jazz or the other way around. Yeah. It's it's a mystery to to to, to he confound really, those historians. He really hated jazz. Um which is weird. Jazz is great. Black people yeah, and jazz. swing too. Jazz is fine. It wasn't and a swing. fan of swing either. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, no, that's well that's here here's the thing. Like Swing is a kind of jazz. Jazz is a huge genre. All sorts of. I'm not. I'm not going to get into jazz right now. Jazz is great. There's jazz for everyone out there. I took a jazz class in college with this guy, <laughs> and I aced it. Um, I am. Uh, I actually uh, listened to Cayman's new podcast coming soon called "Give Him the Old Razzle Jazzle." <laughs> <laughs> I would love to do that podcast. Can we change our topic? Nope. An IRWIH network yes. podcast. <laughs> yes. Razzle and the old razzle-jazzle. There's actually a lot of interesting stories in jazz. But moving on, uh, I have a few afternotes here um, because we did kind of reach the end of the war on drugs. It's still ongoing, so, you know, we may have an update here soon. Uh, but as my first afternote, um, drug use for medicinal and recreational purposes has been happening in the United States since the country's inception. In the 1890s, the popular Sears and Roebuck catalog included an offer for a syringe and a small amount of cocaine for $1.50. Nice. At the time, cocaine use obviously had not been outlawed. So that's pretty rad. And now Sears is out of business, probably because they can't sell cocaine anymore. Wait, is Sears out of business or is it just Kmart? Sears, I'm pretty sure, is also Sears out, is of out of business. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring this up this is actually a quote this is from a man named john l ehrlichman quote so the nixon campaign in 1968 the white house the nixon white house after that had two enemies the anti-war left and black people you understand what i'm saying we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know that we were lying about drugs? Of course we did. Now, John L. Rickman was one of Nixon's chief advisors. That being said, it seems pretty incriminating coming from him, but that being said... John Ilrichman hated Nixon. Why did John Ilrichman hate Nixon? Because John Ilrichman was the man who came up with Watergate and executed Watergate. And then after he got convicted, because remember, Nixon may not have been privy about Watergate, didn't get pardoned. And he was pissed at Nixon for the rest of his life and talked shit on Nixon for the rest of his life because he didn't get pardoned. 
In reality, John Ehrlichman was a scumbag, so this quote might be true. It's definitely believable, but I will say that disclaimer on it, I'm not sure if this is the most reputable person to talk shit on the Nixon Okay, campaign. so I got I got a little lost there. Are you, was that a quote that Elrickman said Nixon said? No, that was yeah, that was a quote about their strategy. He was like, "This is what but Nixon's who, strategy was." Okay, he said that this is what Nixon yeah. wanted. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it was like it was he was an advisor too, so it was all right. of their strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, Still, I don't think that you would. Uh, I don't think you'd sink your own ship to. Uh, I don't know. You might. Cut your nose uh, he'd already been face. sank. He was in True. prison for years. So. Yeah, uh, he he hated Nixon. Um, that's why it's. If I had to guess, I'd probably flip a quarter on if it's true or not. I. Eh. Regardless, top three most dangerous drugs. Can you guess them, Michael? Um. Top like when we say most dangerous, like most deadly. Yeah. Uh, bonus points if you can get them in order. Uh, okay, number one, I'm going to say methamphetamine. All right, what's your number two? Number two, uh, I'm going to say heroin. All right, number, number three. three. Oh, actually, I would put alcohol number one. I would say drinking and driving probably kills more people than anything. So, yeah, put alcohol at the top and then meth so you're and gonna heroin. Go- Alcohol, meth, heroin. Uh, well, got... uh, hold on. Tobacco might be because of like lung disease. Okay, okay. So I'll go ahead and read the list. Okay, yeah, because yeah. Because you, you got... started, yeah. you started on the wrong foot, and I think most people do, which is why I brought this yeah. up. Yeah. Number one most deadly drug in the U.S. Tobacco. Four hundred and eighty thousand yeah. people a year die from tobacco. Wow. Actually, more Americans die from tobacco-caused health problems like lung cancer and heart disease. Then from reported drug overdoses, traffic accidents, and homicides combined. Wow. Tobacco is by far the most major, like, elective killer in our country. Hmm. Uh, number glad... two. <laughs> number uh, two. Isn't suicide number one? No, this uh, is of drugs. This is drugs. You said elected killer. Yeah, so, well. Who's electing these killers? I'm I'm saying like, like people elect to do tobacco. You elect to suicide. Yeah, you definitely elect to suicide. I don't know how many people die of suicide. All right, I thought producer, that was the number one killer. Producer, if you just wrong. want to toss that out, how about you look it up? How many people die of okay. suicide in the U.S. Right, every year? Me. Surely not four hundred eighty thousand. Surely not. That's a lot. That's a lot. This is going to be super depressing. I'm going to say forty thousand people die. Of suicide every day. Regardless, it's forty-eight thousand. How many is uh? How many is tobacco? Four hundred eighty. Four hundred eighty thousand. Oh, wow, that's, that's a lot. Okay, never mind. Uh, regardless, suicide's stupid. And if you're thinking about committing it, call a suicide hotline. Get some help. Not worth it. Um, number two, alcohol. Twenty-nine thousand direct deaths, but it rises to eighty-eight thousand if you include drunk driving and homicides. Yeah. And actually, fun fact here. 40% of violent crimes in the U.S. are committed under the influence of alcohol. Huh. Uh, alcohol is a terrible drug. Um, prescription drugs are number three. coming oh, in come at about, on. Coming in at 45,000. You just you lump all prescription drugs in there together? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, although it has been proven that more policing that is done with prescription drugs uh, leads to higher heroin use. So when people can't get their prescription drugs, people switch to heroin. 
and I think that's why it's 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 mostly opiates. Um, yeah, but that's that's my big point here is the top three most dangerous drugs are already legal, and the rest wow. of them comparatively are not that deadly. I mean, drugs will ruin your life. Drugs are awful, but uh, in summary, drugs are bad. <laughs> In summary, drugs are bad. Okay. Not marijuana. I don't think marijuana is bad at all. If we ever legalized marijuana in this country, and I'll I'll be the first to say it. I'm not someone that you know smokes. I, or I doubt uses, you'll be the first to say it. I, well, I'm not someone that uses like drugs or marijuana now, but I definitely drink. Oh, no, I'll be the first to and say it. I, if I if marijuana becomes legal, I will not be. I'm pretty sure I've heard people say drinking it a lot or getting drunk or because like the thing is marijuana like. You don't have a hangover. It's not bad for your liver. Marijuana is in every way. This week sponsored by marijuana. Thanks, marijuana. Pretty much, dude. If it ever becomes legal, it's it's the silliest thing in the world that marijuana is legal. I I think it's kind of silly that all drugs are legal. We need to try something else out. But marijuana is just it's ridiculous. Well, that's about it. Um, So uh, yeah. First episode of season two. We are happy to be back. Honestly, I've missed it a lot. Reading this was a lot of fun. We have some very cool topics coming up. Uh, Michael, can you give them any sort of hint about what will be coming next? I know more about football now than I have ever known in the past. And <laughs> okay. I okay. So there's your hint. Man, it's something it's foosball related. American football. I know we have American a lot of. Uh, I know we have a lot of international listeners. I'm not learning about soccer. I have no interest in it. Well, um, see, the thing is, we I can... honestly have no interest in American football either. But uh, <laughs> you know, I make I make sacrifices for the podcast. There we go. Oh uh, well, well, I, I want to say I want to save that for uh, for the next episode. I don't want to give that away yet. Okay. All right. Well, in that case, it was a pleasure talking to all of you. We are happy to be back. You're all so beautiful listening to us right now. Listening to my voice. I can I can vibe with what you're thinking right now. And I'm happy to be here with you. Uh, Michael, go ahead and close us out. And we'll see you next time. Alright, hold on. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at IRWYHpodcast. And on Instagram at IReallyWishYouHadn't. Got any questions or comments? Email us at podcast at IReallyWishYouHadn't.com And if you hadn't yet, go ahead and uh, hit that follow button, please. Uh... We got more stuff coming in the future. I know we had a two-month break, but now it's going to be back to the regular bi-weekly schedule. Um, yeah, so there's going to be more episodes of this. Yeah, and we want your feedback on we've made some, on the logo. We want your feedback yes. on the logo. We want your feedback on the new format. Uh, and the website looks a little different if you listen on the website for some reason. Oh, feedback us, on all of them. And send yeah. us recommendations. Dude, you want to hear yeah. something covered? We would love to have you do our work and like send us a good topic. I Really Wish You Hadn't is hosted by me, Michael Bentley, and Cayman Magmahan. We are produced by Colin Moore. Our intro music is by Attack Story. Our outro music is by Home. Please remember to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, do drugs. Do them. It's fine. Don't do drugs. And as always, don't do anything I wouldn't do.